Please turn with me in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7. If you don't have a Bible, there should be Bibles on a shelf in the back of the auditorium here. Uh, I think you'll be helped by following along with our our chapter uh, this morning, Daniel chapter 7. But I need to do a little bit of introduction to set the stage for the material that we're going to cover. The uh, book of Daniel is uh, often divided into two halves. And the first six chapters uh, captures in chronological order several of the key moments in the life and ministry of uh, the prophet Daniel's 60 years in Babylon. And these chapters provide us, as we've seen, memorable accounts of how God faithfully protects and preserves his people while they're living in exile, living in a hostile world. But in the second half of Daniel, a couple things change. First, the chronological pattern is broken. So as we turn to chapter 7, we're actually going to be jumping backward in history about 16 years back to the reign of King Belshazzar, who we read about in chapter 5. The second change is a stylistic one. The book shifts genres from uh, narrative material, narrative uh, meaning reports of connected events, to apocalyptic material. So why is it important that we know this? And what does it uh, mean to say that the second half of of Daniel is apocalyptic? Well, it's important that we understand uh, the stylistic category of a piece of writing because uh, the genre or or style affects the meaning that we uh, uh, draw out of of any given piece of of writing or communication. So for example, if I uh, turn to my wife and inspired by the book of Song of Solomon say that my wife's cheeks are like two pomegranate halves, she immediately makes the connection that I'm speaking poetically. And not literally. If, if she thought I was giving a report or something, uh, she would be thoroughly confused. Right? You, we make those connections in our mind. And in, in apocalyptic writing, uh, it's especially important that we realize the genre because it makes a rich use of symbolism and imagery. So, for example, uh, uh, apocalyptic literature will often use numbers in, in symbolic fashions. It'll use numbers like the number four or the number 10 or the number seven to symbolize completeness or wholeness. Sometimes apocalyptic literature uses images that are familiar to us, uh, but other times it uses images that are quite frankly uh, ghastly or strange. In some ways you might uh, find that apocalyptic literature resembles uh, modern science fiction in the way that it purposefully uses dramatic strong imagery uh, to convey impressions and ideas. Apocalyptic literature, another feature of of the writing was uh, that that it was often written in response to terrible feelings of hopelessness. It was written for moments in history where it seemed like the world was about to be permanently plunged into darkness and evil. And it responds to these feelings of, of helplessness by zooming out from human history, if you will, and looking at it from God's perspective. So in apocalyptic literature, uh, those portions of scripture that write in this way, God uses dreams and he uses visions that he gives to the biblical writers to give them an ability to see history, not from the inside of it, as we normally see history, but from outside of it, from the vantage point of heaven. So in apocalyptic literature, we're not looking at normal everyday events, but we're given a special look into transcendent heavenly realities. 
And this is just one more reason why apocalyptic literature is so rich with symbolism. Uh, the, the biblical writers or prophets who receive these visions are getting a glimpse into things so wonderful, so magnificent, so uh, contrary to usual experience that they're left to reach for, for symbols and images and analogies to communicate to us what they've seen. And we'll see that now as we dive in to Daniel chapter 7. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the, the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts came up out of the sea different from one another. The first was like a lion. And had eagle's wings. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. And the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one like a bear. It was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth and it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. After this I looked and behold, another like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads and dominion was given to it. And after this, I saw in the night visions and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and it broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it and it had 10 horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, and its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. And I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed, and its body destroyed, and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious, and the visions of my head alarmed me. I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of the things. These four great beasts are four kings who shall rise out of the earth, but the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever and ever. Then I desired to know the truth about the fourth beast, 
which was different from all the rest, exceedingly terrifying with its teeth of iron and claws of bronze and which devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. And about the ten horns that were on its head and the other horn that came up and before which three of them fell, the horn that had eyes and a mouth that spoke great things and that seemed greater than its companions. As I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High. And the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. Thus he said, As for the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, which shall be different from all the kingdoms. And it shall devour the whole earth and trample it down and break it to pieces. As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom ten kings shall arise. And another shall arise after them, and he shall be different from the former ones and shall put down three kings. He shall speak words against the Most High and shall wear out the saints of the Most High and shall think to change the times and the law. And they shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. But the court shall sit in judgment and his dominion shall be taken away to be consumed and destroyed to the end. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and his dominions shall serve, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. Here is the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly alarmed me, and my color changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. Let's ask for the Lord's help now. Lord, you've said that your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. And yet, uh, we can freely admit as we come to this passage that it is perhaps not as readily understood as others that we might read. And therefore, Lord, it's easy for us to ask for your help now. We ask, Lord, that you would give to us help to understand your word and to profit from it. Lord, you gave this, re- this vision to Daniel for a reason. You had Daniel record it for a reason You've given it to us now for a reason, for a purpose, and therefore don't allow us to go away from the sermon today without the blessing of hearing and understanding your word. ask that you would overcome my deficiencies as a communicator. I ask that you would overcome our deficiencies as listeners, hearers of the word. I ask that you would overcome the seemingly great cultural distance between this passage and us today so that your church might be strengthened that we might be built up in faith. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As I've said a number of times, the book of Daniel is the record of the the Jewish prophet Daniel. And it records his life in exile. And it's focused on how do we live faithful lives as the people of God in a home not our own. And this applies just as much to us today as Christians living in 21st century America as it does to Daniel's audience in the 6th century. And that purpose, we'll see, is true just as much in Daniel 7 as it is in the rest of the book. And the dream uh, sequence that we just read contains uh, three scenes and then an interpretation provided by God. And so um, in your outline that's been provided, I've, I've labeled the scenes, four beasts raging, the Ancient of Days judging, and the Son of Man 
reigning. And so we'll look at these uh, and then look at what it means for us. The first scene in Daniel's vision is of the four beasts raging. This is a scary scene. I hope you caught some of that. But it's also a, a confusing scene. But I think we can get the grasp of, of the big ideas by asking five brief questions. First, where did the beasts come from? The four great beasts came up out of the sea, verse 3 tells us. Now, in the ancient world in particular, the sea was associated with chaos. The sea with its swirling and churning waves and its tremendous power was a threatening and dark and chaotic place. And in Daniel's vision, these four beasts are birthed out of the, the pounding, raging waves of chaos. It's an ominous origin for these beasts, and it immediately says something about their character. These beasts, whatever they might be or whoever they might be, they are not associated with godliness and order, but with disaster and undoing and destruction and chaos. Who are the four beasts supposed to be? Well, the basic meaning, the meaning that's most essential for us to get is interpreted for us by the angelic being in verse 17. These four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. They're the kingdoms of the world. Now, much debate has uh, uh, gone on about the exact identity of, of who these kingdoms are. And I'll provide you with what I think makes the most sense of the passage. And, and you'll see uh, a chart on the back of your handout, which, which might uh, provide some cross-references for you to look up later. But here, I think, is, is how we make the most sense of, of these beasts. The first beast is... Uh, who's lifted up uh, off the ground to stand on two feet and who's given the mind of a man is clearly a reference to King Nebuchadnezzar from chapter 4. And it's a reference to Babylon. It's the kingdom that Daniel is currently living under. The second beast is the lopsided bear. This is Medo-Persia, the kingdom that will conquer Babylon. It makes sense historically. And we see a, a similar uh, unevenly distributed beast in chapter 8, which is explicitly identified as Medo-Persia. The four-headed, four-winged leopard is likely Greece. And the final beast, I think, though it's not clearly identified elsewhere in the book, is probably the Roman Empire. Now, while I think uh, that this is uh, the right understanding of, of who those beastly kingdoms are, let me emphasize uh, that that's not the main point. The main point of this passage is not to identify certain kingdoms or certain empires as being particularly bad or, to use a New Testament term, uh, to, to identify them as, as sort of antichrist figures, specific antichrist figures. If, if, if the purpose was to specifically identify them, we could expect that that would be provided in the interpretation that we find in this chapter. Rather, these kingdoms uh, represent the major geopolitical powers from Daniel's day and, and for the next 900 years. They're symbolic of, of the, the major powers of men, the kingdoms of the world. That's how we should think of these beasts. Third question. Why are the kingdoms described like a bad animal salad? Well, remember, this is apocalyptic literature, and so word pictures can be blended together to convey impressions and ideas. 
So we're not to take this literally, but we're supposed to catch the, the, the sense which the vision provides. So for example, the lopsided bear with the, the food, with the ribs still in its teeth, symbolizes a ravenous hunger. The flying leopard of the third kingdom uh, hints at a, a terrifying swiftness and ferocity, which works well. Uh, it's a particularly apt description if, if this is the Greek empire and Alexander the Great who conquered Persia in, in the span of just three short years. But they're also portrayed as animals. They're not portrayed as men. And this says something about the quality of their reign. They're beastly. They're brutal. Fourth question. How do these beastly kings conduct themselves? Well, the beasts are true to their beastly nature and their ominous origin. They're violent. They're savage. They're terrible. They're destructive. They're powerful. This is true of the first three kingdoms, but it's especially true of the final kingdom to appear. Things get worse before they get better. The fourth beast, so terrible that no specific animal is attributed to it, emerges from the sea throbbing with destructive strength. It has these iron teeth which are perfectly crafted to crush, and its feet grind to dust all that's left of its victims. It's a terrible scene. No wonder Daniel is alarmed by it. This beast, or rather the, the kingdom uh, that it represented, possessed ten horns, we're told. Now in apocalyptic imagery, horns, so think of uh, rhinos, gazelles, deers, they're used to indicate power and status. So horns are used as symbolic uh, images for kings in apocalyptic literature. So this fourth kingdom arises with ten horns or, or kings, uh, but there's one king in particular who asserts himself, and he speaks great things. Or as the NIV puts it, uh, he speaks boastfully. He runs his mouth. He wages war against the saints, and he prevailed over them for a time. If you skip down to verses 23 and 25, we get a further explanation of this dreadful fourth kingdom and this boasting little horn. It says, He shall speak words against the Most High, and he shall wear out the saints of the Most High, and he shall think to change the times and the law, and they shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. This king will oppose the Lord. He will blaspheme the name of the Lord Most High. He will oppose the Lord's people, actively setting himself against them, waging war against them, wearing them out like an old shirt that stretches or tears. The king will oppose the Lord's worship by striving to change the, the way of worship, the, the times and the life of worship, uh, 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 the law. And in this fashion, according to a set time, the people of God are given into this tyrant's hands for an unspecified period of time to endure his vile oppression for a time, times, and half a time. Finally, when will this all happen? Well, this question uh, misses the point. The point of this vision is not for us to be able to spend a lot of time plugging in dates into our iCals or our spreadsheets. That's not what this dream is about. We can look back into history and we can compare Daniel's vision with the historical events which transpired after the time of Daniel. But the main point of this part of the vision is to shape the expectations of the church for how history is to unfold. 
The visions of the four four beasts raging is meant to brace the people of God for life in the world. History is characterized by conflict. Earthly kings violently clash with one another. Kings and nations go to war with one another. Rulers plot to overthrow other rulers, as we see with the little horn displacing the three other horns in verse 8. But there's an even more fundamental conflict that Daniel's vision is concerned with. And that's the conflict between the kingdoms of men, the kingdoms of the world, and the kingdoms of God. And this conflict means that faithfulness to God, though it be the right road, is not an easy road, not in this world, so long as this conflict exists. Now, in Daniel's day, uh, his his exiles, uh, fellow exiles were in Babylon, and you could uh, perhaps uh, imagine how Uh, As they were going through the hardships of living in exile, they were looking ahead to the day when God would bring them back to the promised land. It would be about 15 years till the first exile started returning home. And you can perhaps imagine how uh, many of them would assume that their returning home to the promised land would be wedded with peace and blessing, and that when God delivered them from captivity, life would be good. Perhaps we've been, uh, we've, been prone to think this way. God mercifully delivers us uh, out of our sin by joining us to Christ by faith. Uh, We profess our faith with great excitement. We join the church. Surely life is easier now, isn't it? Surely there's going to be blessing. Surely uh, things will just be a bit better. But then what happens when your new identity as a Christian, uh, despite your best efforts, causes an old friendship to die? Or what happens when your desire to submit to uh, what the Bible teaches about how you should live uh, brings you into a costly conflict? Or what happens when other general hardships like loss or sickness come into your life? If you expected that the Christian life would be a bed of roses, you're going to be disheartened and disoriented. Well, similarly to the Jews, though uh, they would return from exile as God promised, uh, it wouldn't be all lollipops and sunshine all the time. In fact, for a couple of centuries, uh, uh, they would be participating in a game of geopolitical football. The only problem was they were the football. Various empires would rise up and, and life for the people of God was quite difficult. It was filled with conflict. They received much hostility. They were persecuted. The beast in Daniel's dream braces the people of God with the truth truth that life for the people of God in the world is hard and filled with conflict. Why? Because in this world, there is a basic antithesis between the the two kingdoms. There's a basic conflict between the kingdom of the world represented by these beastly, terrible kings and the kingdom of God. And this division means that life in the world as a Christian, as a follower of God, does not promise to be easy. It's not for the faint of heart. You're going to want a helmet and shoulder pads. We don't just see this in Daniel either, by the way. And we think of uh, Jesus, how he warns and braces his disciples for what will come. He tells them, you will be hated by all for my name's sake. The apostle Peter, too, in in 1 Peter 4 says, Beloved, don't be surprised by the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you 
as though something strange were happening to you. All throughout the scriptures, we see this, this warning that to follow God, there is a cost associated with it because there is a conflict in the world between the kingdoms of men and the kingdoms of God. That's what God in this first part of the vision wants to do. He gives this big picture of the fundamental conflict in history between the kingdoms of the world and the kingdoms of God so that we will be prepared to stand firm when life is hard. But even as the little horn is boasting and speaking against the Most High, Daniel suddenly sees something else. In the midst of the raging beasts, he sees another wondrous scene. God gives Daniel a, a glimpse into the throne room of heaven. Now, such visions in Scripture are, are quite rare. The Apostle Paul speaks of being caught up into heaven, uh, being, glimpses, uh, uh, being given glimpses of heavenly realities, but he says that the, th- the things he heard were things that cannot be told, cannot be uttered. But when these rare glimpses are given into heavenly realities, it appears that God gives them because his people are facing or are about to face intense suffering. And so to encourage, to fortify, God gives uh, his people a glimpse into what is ultimately true. Let me try and illustrate this. Imagine for a second that you were part of an army that was fighting a great war. And the fighting uh, has, has been fierce and your fellows, you uh, with your fellow soldiers have been uh, pushed back by a vicious enemy assault and you find yourself hemmed in and the enemy's artillery is pounding your position and things seem hopeless, and even though you wouldn't want to admit it, uh, the thought uh, comes into your head uh, of possible surrender. But then suddenly your commanding officer calls to you, uh, you of all people, and he says, come, accompany me. Uh, We're going to the war room of the supreme commander, the the lead general. And so you race back uh, from the front lines to the commander's quarters, and you step inside his tent or his building, whatever, And inside you see a flurry of activity and you see him standing at at a big map and and he's moving pieces around the map. And you see where your unit is, how it's pinned and and pressed by the enemy. Then you notice the general's face. You see, there's no surprise upon his face. He doesn't seem dismayed by what's going on. You see that uh, and, and hear how he has in fact anticipated how the enemy would act, that the enemy would act in exactly the way he has. And you hear that, that the general has all the firepower ready to bring the final victory. And then suddenly it dawns on you that all of the enemy assaults that your unit has and will endure was part of this general's certain plan for victory. And so... Having seen that, once you're dismissed back to your unit, though you know that it's going to be a tough go, you have been fortified, you have been prepared because you know there's just one possible outcome, victory. Well, in Daniel's vision, it's as if God were inviting his people into the throne room or the war room of heaven to show them, to assure them that though the kingdom of the world may launch its vicious assaults, the kingdom of heaven is fully aware of every trick and every strategy and every offensive, the Lord's not caught off guard or ill-supplied against the raging kingdoms of the world. Well, if that's the, the purpose of this scene, who and what do Daniel actually see? 
Well, in the throne room of heaven, Daniel sees the Ancient of Days. This is a a name used of, of God to speak of his eternality. He's the one without beginning or end. And you notice that as the little horn rages and as he runs his mouth, the Ancient of Days is, is not portrayed as, as uh, standing, as pacing, as fretting like we do when we're stressed, but he is seated in power. And he is described as being radiant and dazzlingly pure. He's clothed in white. His hair is like pure white wool. He's seated on a throne of fire and a river of fire shoots forth from his throne. Fire being that which purifies. So it's a scene of great purity. See, unlike the the kingdoms of the world who are described as this ghastly animal mishmash of things, the kingdom or the king of heaven is wholly pure. And as the Ancient of Days sits upon his throne, there's a vast crowd of angels that are gathered around him to serve him. They stand ready at a moment's notice to carry out the Ancient of Days' commands. God has this army of angels that outnumbers and outpowers anything that the kingdom of of men have. And they're there, always there, prepared uh, to carry out his will with the greatest swiftness and efficiency. As these angels surround the throne, we're, we're told that the heavenly court sat in judgment and the books were opened. It's apparent that the Ancient of Days sits upon his throne, not only as a king, but as a judge. And the opening of the books uh, symbolizes, marks the beginning of judgment. Court is in session. This judgment in the vision begins with the fourth beastly kingdom and the little horn. And this kingdom, which thought to oppose God, to oppose the saints of God, and to oppose the worship of God, is judged and condemned. This anti-God kingdom is destroyed. It's burned with fire. Verse 26, but the court shall sit in judgment and his dominion shall be taken away to be consumed and destroyed to the end. You see, when the most high God has allotted, he's a, a, there's a time that he is allotted for wicked rulers to expire. And then the Ancient of Days shall carry out his justice and, and the kingdom that opposed him will be utterly and completely and totally destroyed. So God has set limits on the the beasts in this vision. He has sovereignly ordained the rule of those who oppose him so that they shall not oppose him for a nanosecond more than he has sovereignly decreed. And when that time is up, when that time is up, the Ancient of Days with his myriad of angels will not allow for the beastly kingdoms to sue for peace. There will be no deal There will be no coming to terms with this anti-God kingdom. It will only be total victory over it and over all who belong to it. And even the other kingdoms, though they're not immediately exterminated, we're told they're stripped of their power. They're declawed, they're defanged, and permitted to continue only for a time. So you see, we've seen this antithesis, this this conflict between the, the beastly kingdoms, the kingdoms of the world, and the kingdoms of the ancient day, but the vision wants us to see more. The vision intends to communicate that these two kingdoms are not two kingdoms on equal footing, waging a tireless war against each other, like Muhammad Ali or Joe Frazier exchanging blow after blow. But it tells us that the kingdom of the world is under the power of God, and that he, the Ancient of Days, shall have the victory. 
See, oppressive tyrants like Babylon and Persia and Greece and Rome, they will fall to his judgment. Same for the persecutors of Christians in our own time. I was reading yesterday about a man who, who beat his, his wife and daughter uh, because they were baptized. Or thugs who break up church meetings because they hate the Lord Jesus and his church. Right? They will come under the, the judgment of the ancient of days. Consider billion-dollar industries that set themselves up against the worship of God by creating addicts, by creating idolaters to sex and to technology and and to consumption. All these things are wicked tentacles of the kingdom of the world, the, the kingdom of those who do not love God. And all these, as we see in Daniel's vision, stand under the judgment, stand under the power of the Ancient of Days and all his purity and holiness, and one day they will be utterly destroyed. But there's more to Daniel's vision. One more visual scene for us to take in. Look at verse, uh, verses 13 and 14. Daniel's shown that not only does the Ancient of Days take the kingdom from these raging anti-God beasts, but he gives a kingdom to someone else. To the Ancient of Days, or the Ancient of Days gives dominion and glory and a kingdom to one like a son of man. So who is this son of man? Who is this kingly figure? If you've grown up uh, in the church, as many of you have, and you've had your mind shaped by years of Bible teaching, your mind's already jumping ahead to places. But let's look at what Daniel's vision identifies first. First, from this, his title he's given, son of man, we see that he has the appearance of a human figure. This, again, is especially noteworthy when we compare the son of man, one like a son of man, to the grotesque animal, brutish beasts that we've encountered already. You see, unlike these wild kings of the kingdom of men, this son of man who receives power and glory reflects what it properly means to be human. The second thing this heavenly vision wishes to tell us is that the son of man is not merely a man. He's no ordinary man. The clouds are his chariot, his vehicle, To Daniel's audience, they would have immediately made the connection uh, to other places in the Old Testament because there is only one who rides upon the clouds. At Mount Sinai, it's the Lord God who comes to Israel in a thick cloud, Exodus 19. Psalm 18 describes the Lord riding the wings of the wind and wrapping himself in thick clouds. Isaiah 19, the prophet says, Behold, the Lord is riding on a swift cloud. See, only God rides the clouds. So this son of man is not just human, but he's divine. He's also divine because only then can the vision go on to say with approval that he receives dominion and glory and a kingdom and that all peoples and nations should serve him, or we might translate it, worship him. So we see this, uh, uh, this figure, this son of man figure, divine and human, we know from the rest of Revelation that this God-man is Christ, Christ who takes this name upon himself. He refers to himself as the son of man who must suffer, the son of man who will rise, the son of man who will come with the angels, the son of man who will sit on the throne coming on the clouds. And when he says that, his enemies are furious because they know exactly what he's saying. They know that Jesus is saying he's the figure in Daniel chapter 7. 
And so to this God-man, to Christ, as we see from the New Testament, according to Daniel's vision, he receives from the Ancient of Days dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. He receives not only a kingdom, but he receives a universal kingdom. It's a kingdom that he draws from the, uh, all corners of the globe. It's a, a kingdom uh, that, that uh, is made up of people from every color of the spectrum. It's made up of people who speak German and Portuguese and Mandarin and Arabic and Swahili and English, and yes, even those who speak American. It's an everlasting kingdom. His kingdom shall not pass away. His kingdom shall not be destroyed. The kingdoms of the world can rage fiercely, but they shall all be given over to the Son of Man, and their kingdoms shall perish, but his kingdom lasts forever. But I want to show you one final feature. And in a way, I think this is the most remarkable, most astounding vision of this whole remarkable vision. It's a point that's repeated at least three times in, the, in uh, Daniel 7. Look at verse 18. The angelic interpreter says, The saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever and ever. Then in verse 22, after the horn made war against the saints and prevailed over them, the Ancient of Days shall pass judgment for on behalf of his saints. And then a time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. And then one more time in verse 27, and the kingdom and the dominions and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. The one like a son of man is given a kingdom. He's given dominion, which he will share with his saints, with his people. Think of how different this is from the kingdom of the world. Think of how different it is from how the kingdom of the world operates. Both Daniel's vision and our experience confirms it. The the kingdom of the world drives men to accumulate power and glory for their own purposes. We saw this with Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar in chapters 4 and 5. The kingdoms of men hoard glory and honor, but the Son of Man is granted a kingdom which he invites his weary saints into to share in. The kingdom of the world is characterized by trampling down and climbing over bodies for a fleeting prize, but the Son of Man is intent to lift up the head of his saints and to crown them with an unfading crown of glory. The kingdom of the world is about desperately clinging to fading power and passing glory, but the Son of Man shall bestow everlasting power and unspeakable glory upon his loved ones. And whereas the kingdom of the world is built, as we see in this dream, uh, by power, by acting violently, Colossians 2 tells us that Christ, the Son of Man, instituted his kingdom not by acting violently, but by enduring violence. For he disarmed the rulers and authorities by his death upon a cross. You see, this vision is remarkable in so many ways, but perhaps the most remarkable way is Uh, The most remarkable thing is not that the kingdom of, of man is brutish and nasty. Your experience will tell you that. It's not that God is God and God shall get the victory. Logic would suggest that. But the thing that is most remarkable to me is that we're told that we, we, if we are joined to the Son of Man by faith, we are offered a kingdom and a crown in him. 
And this is the promise we see in, in 2 Timothy 2 as well, that if we have died with him, we shall also live with him. And if we endure, we shall also reign with him. Now, we've covered a lot of ground this morning, but I'm going to close with very, two very brief concluding applications. First, see how lovely the Son of Man is and see how lovely his kingdom is. He is powerful, but he's also uh, beneficent and, and generous. See how utterly different his reign is compared with the kingdom of the world. See how without detracting from his glory, without detracting from his power, he liberally gives to you, his saints, a share in a kingdom that is without end. See how much his kingship and his kingdom is to be preferred and worship him. And second, see that the kingdom of God is ruled by a better by a stronger, by a kinder, by a more lovely king, and that he shall win the everlasting victory. And so endure, stand firm. Yes, faithfulness in this world is hard. Opposition comes from every side. We are in a world of conflict between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of man. The world is not a friend of godliness, but stand firm. The Ancient of Days sits on the throne. The Son of Man is seated over his everlasting kingdom. And for the one who perseveres according to the strength that God provides, we shall be brought into that kingdom and we shall be brought to that king to enjoy the full and final peace of his victory. Let's pray. Father in heaven, surely this is a wondrous vision that you have given to us of things greater than our minds can comprehend. But Lord, as we look out to the world and as we look out to the warning of Daniel chapter 7, recognizing the conflict that exists between the world, those who hate you, and your people, Lord, we are greatly comforted by the glimpse you have given to us of, of the court of heaven, that we would see you, the ancient of days, in all your purity, seated on, seated on the throne in judgment. Judgment for the saints. Judgment that will be on behalf of the saints. And Jesus, we worship you as the Son of Man who has come, the God-Man who comes and who disarmed the, the rulers and authorities of the world, who has won the victory in your death and resurrection. And Jesus, we thank you that you are a king who so graciously, so generously offers to your people, sinful, weak people like us, but you offer to us a kingdom and that by faith in you, Lord, faith which you provide, we have the expectation that one day, we shall wear crowns that will dazzle the mind. We shall be seated upon thrones that surely we don't deserve. And we shall reign with you, the Lord Most High. Set our hope upon that day so that in this day we might persevere, press on, be strong. We ask, Holy Spirit, that you would do this work in us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.